Thank you, Michael. The, the, the Gettys have been such a gift to the Christian community, haven't they? Those words straight from Lamentations 3, spoken in new and fresh ways, but just the depth of the theology in those words. I, I pray that as that tune continues to, can we say, haunt you through the week, uh, that you pull those words as well. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. His mercy abounds for us today as well. I bring you greetings from your Texas Baptist family. More than 5,000 churches across the state and many spilling over into other states as well who've chosen to cooperate fully with Texas Baptist. God's at work and it's a movement of God and we've seen what he's been doing. We start new churches every year because Texas continues to grow and to become more and more diverse and new kinds of churches and new places, new populations. It's fun to be a part of that. You do that through your cooperative program giving as a congregation. Many of you also do that through individuals' gifts through the Texas Baptist Missions Foundation. The purpose of the group that I lead is to help connect Baptists, making God's mission their legacy. We help to make people aware of opportunities and needs and help them to figure out the most uh, tax-advantaged and leveraged ways to make a gift that could really make a profound impact and a difference. You're on 137 campuses in the state of Texas with the gospel at universities all around this state and beyond. Through that, we not only reach students with the good news of Jesus, but we disciple them, they share their faith, and then we launch them and they become leaders around the world. Not, through, not only through Baptist student ministry, but through churches exactly like yours, exactly like ours. 10 years from now, it'll be those college students who hear the gospel who are your leaders and are the ones setting the standards for what God's gonna do in this community. This morning, our passage is found in John chapter six, beginning with verse one. John chapter six, beginning with verse one. This is the word of God. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. Jesus has been crisscrossing the small lake that they called the Sea of Galilee so that the people who were crowding after him would have to go around the perimeter of the lake. He could get across it quicker in a boat and that bought them some time to be with the Lord to be together, Jesus and his disciples. He goes up on the mountainside, and John reminds us as the time of year was nearly Passover, so mid-spring, but also reminding us that this was on Jesus' heart from the very beginning of his ministry, where he would lay down his life as that Passover lamb for us, and he would take that Passover meal and that last supper with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, and he would take the bread and say, this is my body broken for you as a foreshadowing in this particular account. We we'll want you to note too that this passage is the only miracle of Jesus found in all four gospels except for the resurrection. It makes this a powerful phrase, doesn't it? It means that these words matter and that they count and God has a message for us in this today as well. When Jesus looked up from the mountainside and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, one of his disciples, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. 
The great crowd is coming. Texas is filling with people, almost a million new people every year. Where do they go to church? Jesus looked up and saw the crowds coming toward him. And he said, here they come. They've been following because of the miracles that he had been doing and healing people. And they gathered thousands of them. And here they come. He looks and he asks Philip, where are you going to buy enough bread to feed these people? They're hungry. They need it. What do you do when you face overwhelming need? You live in the city of Plano. I love Plano. It's been our home for a long time now. It is indeed a city of excellence, even as the sign says. But there's great need in this place. It's not just the hungry children at the elementary school that you'll be helping with in the next few weeks. There are hungry people throughout Collin County. There are lost people on every street in Collin County. There are folks whose lives are hell-bent, literally, and head in that direction. And we have the good news of Jesus. We look down from where we stand and we say, what are we going to do to meet these needs? It's overwhelming. Philip looked at it and said, Lord, it's impossible. You ever tell God that? Jesus, I know what you're asking. It can't be done. Who does he think he's talking to? Who do we think we're talking to? He sees the overwhelming need, and he considers it to be a math problem. Well, I've thought about this. Jesus, uh, Philip says to Jesus, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. He figured out exactly the size of a human bite and figured out how many loaves of bread that would be and how much money that would take. And it's exhausting, isn't it? But isn't it always so much easier to throw a business solution to a Jesus problem? Who is it we're talking to? Jesus sidestepped that one. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he, Jesus, was going to do. You mean God tests us? You bet. Well, I didn't think God tests anybody. No, you're, you're thinking of the devil. <laughs> He's the one who, who tempts people. And the purpose of a temptation is to cause us to fail, to cause us to fall on our faith, to be helpless and hopeless and separated from God because of our sin. And he's successful so much of the time, but God never tempts us. He does, however, provide a test. Your doctor uses tests to diagnose your health. The worst one of all is when you step on that scale, right? <laughs> Trust me, it's a test. At school, no matter what you guys think, your teacher's not giving you a test to flunk you or to embarrass you. The purpose of a test is to understand what needs to be happening next. Are you prepared to go to the next level? Have you mastered this part of the journey together? That's the purpose of a test. I'll never forget my very first test in seminary, beginning my master's level work. In college, I was teased by a Greek professor who was a friend, and he said, well, Jerry's not going to take Greek because he's scared of the grade he's going to get. Well, I'd I have a hard time not responding to stuff like that, so I never said a word. I enrolled in his class. I, my last semester was the fall semester of that year, and I didn't miss a point the whole semester. And every time he turned back a test, he'd go, hmm, wasn't expecting that. 
But I won that one. How about that? Nine months later, I come to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth and enroll in a full level of courses all afternoon because I'm working at church all morning and every night. Part-time church work is the same myth as, gosh, part-time anything. It's full-time if you're there. I took baby Greek, which is to prepare you for the real New Testament Greek. And I thought, okay, two semesters of that should be a breeze because I've already had the first semester, right? How hard could it be? I've already done this and I, I aced it. So that was my chance to coast in those afternoon classes. Three weeks after school started, we had our first exam in baby Greek. I got my test back, and I thought I did really well. I knew exactly what needed to be on there, and I, I, I filled in all the words, and I wrote all the sentences, and I, I knew the vocabulary because I'd already had it. When I got it back, there were some red marks on my paper, 73 of them by count. <laughs> I made a 27 on my very first test, 27. That's something to be proud of, right? It's a great start. Gosh, am I even called to ministry after that? Here's what happened. The Greek professor in college didn't think these little things which are so insignificant, like flex on the page, little breathing marks and accents. He didn't think those mattered, and they didn't matter in his class, but they mattered for this professor. That test got my attention. But 27 doesn't get your attention. You don't need to be there, right? I spent the next week going back through the chapter that I just breezed through because I'd heard they didn't count. But once I knew they counted, that's where I put my time in, and I figured all that out. Couldn't make up the 73 points, but I didn't miss the same ones again, not ever. A test shows us what we need. A test evaluates. A test prepares us, and a test, again, does some things that we'll never forget <laughs> in our lives. Jesus said this to Philip, where are you going to find enough bread to feed all these people? To test him. What was he testing? He was testing Philip's faith. Who did he think he was talking to? Philip wasn't the only one taking that test. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? You know, Andrew was doing pretty good until he got to the, but how far will that go? <laughs> he had been moving around the crowd. He'd been making friends because that's what Andrew always did. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus as we find him in the scriptures. He brought his brother, Simon Peter, to meet Jesus, and he became the leader of the crowd. Of the crowd. Later in Jesus' ministry, toward the end of his ministry, Philip is the one who brings a great big crowd of Greek-speaking people to meet Jesus because they hadn't had the opportunity. What a great thing that Andrew does, and that's what he's known for. Here, he brings a boy to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, we, I, I found a boy who has a sack lunch, and it's a couple of pieces of fish, nothing like what Arby's is advertising these days, but just little pieces of fish and five little bread things, like biscuits. How far is that going to go? It was still a math problem for Andrew. He looked at it and said, that's what we've got, but it's not enough. Like Philip, he looked at the overwhelming need, 
and he saw the limited resource. And he says, that's all there is. It's this and that, and it doesn't add up. That's what they said. The important thing is what Jesus says. First, look at what he did. He said, have the people sit down. So we've told you there's no way, and what we have is not enough, and you're telling the people to sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. You can be sure that their families were gathered there as well. So Jesus says, spread out the red checker tablecloths. We're going to have a picnic. Thousands of those on this hillside overlooking the lake. But we don't have any food, the disciples are thinking. Somebody bring the Yeti, see what's in there. There's nothing. Something happened. Something happened because in the very next verse, Jesus is taking the bread and he's breaking it and he's handing it to the people and the disciples are distributing it and everyone is eating all they want. What happened? Overwhelming need, the lostness, the hunger, the hurt, the desire for God to be at work in their lives. That's why the crowd was there. That's the crowd that surrounds us even as we sit in this place of worship today. The crowd outside these walls, the overwhelming need. And we look at our resource, we think we're doing the best we can, this is what we've got, but it won't nearly be enough. But that's not the end of the story. Something happened. Obviously what happened is the little boy that Andrew found gave his lunch to Jesus. Hmm. The little boy changed the equation. Jesus said, I already know what I'm going to do. Tell the people to sit down. It's time to eat. The one thing that had to happen before Jesus could supply what was necessary, before he could meet the needs of those people, was that one little boy had to change the equation. He took that sack lunch with the five pieces of bread and the two pieces of fish. Jesus, here's my lunch. I trust you with it. Seems so simple, doesn't it? Just a token. That was his lunch. That was his only lunch. That may have been his only meal that day, but he gave it to Jesus. Here's the test. How many lost and hurting and hopeless and hungry people live in this community? The answer, too many. How many resources do you have to meet those needs, Hunter's Glen? The answer is, as best we can tell, not enough. Philip says it's not possible. Andrew says what we have won't get it done. But before Jesus speaks, before he acts to change the situation, to remanufacture the equation, to restate the problem, there has to be a boy or a girl or a woman or a man in this place who's ready to say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. Here's what I got. Jesus has already told the people, sit down, get ready. Once Jesus acted, it's as if he's carrying out the Last Supper in, in, in preparation for the Passover. 
Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were seated, much in the same way he did at that Last Supper, much in the same way he did at breakfast on the beach with the disciples as the resurrected Christ, much as he did with the two on their way from Emmaus on that Sunday afternoon that we call the first Easter. Those who were seated had as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. That's a lot of Tupperware. What they really needed was Mama Kelsey, who Ziploc has designated their corporate officer of leftovers. I kind of like the way Valerie Bertinelli looks at this. She says, don't call them leftovers, they're make-aheads. <laughs> and I think that fits this passage because that's what Jesus was doing. These were not leftovers from five barley loaves and two pieces of fish. This was Jesus' provision. Not just for the people who had gathered, but for their communities as he sent 12 baskets of leftovers home in every direction of the compass. People who weren't even there that day had their needs met through Jesus. How? Through the simple gift of a little boy. What happened when he came into touch with Jesus? What happens when Andrew said, you know, the master's looking for bread. Uh, can, can I take you to him? To Andrew's credit, he brought the boy to Jesus. But to the little boy's credit, here's my lunch. I trust you with it. What are you trusting Jesus with today? You know, God has a funny way when we encounter him of looking at us and saying, what's that you got in your hand? What are you holding on to so tightly? In Exodus, he comes to Moses and says, I want you to go and lead my people to freedom. I want you to be the announcer of the promise to my people. I want you to have them free. I want you to lead them out. I don't know if I can. Excuse after excuse after excuse. And God says, Moses, what's that in your hand? He said, well, that's my staff. I'm watching my father-in-law's sheep. And I need this. It's my protection. It's how I tend them. It's how I defend them from the predators and how I stay safe myself. It's my security. Throw it down. If I throw it down, I'm still holding it, Lord. See, that's the way the world looks at it. In the world's point of view, giving is a zero-sum equation. If I give it, I no longer have it. You have it. I lose. You win. That's not Jesus' way at all. Moses, throw that rod down, and, and when he threw the staff down, it turned into a snake. And God said, now pick it back up. God, have you ever seen a snake before? Do you know how they work? And to pass the test, Moses had to simply say, okay. I lay it down, and I take it up. And when he did, it became the staff of God. And it was that staff that he held to cause the Red Sea to part so that the people of God could walk across. And that staff that he held so that the, the waters would cover Pharaoh's armies and destroy them all. 
It was that staff that Moses used to lead the people to the cusp of the promise. It was God's, and God could work through it in Moses' life. For Abraham, it was not something like that. What Abraham held most closely and that which made him most proud was his one and only son, Isaac, his son with Sarah. God had promised Isaac, and God provided Isaac, and now Abraham, God, you want me to do what? You want me to give him up? How can I do that? What are you holding on to, Abraham? Abraham did what God told him, and God provided. God provided, and he does. In the Gospels, the rich, young man who led many others came to Jesus and said, what, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, well, you need to keep the law. He said, I've done all of that. Well, you, you need to be a good moral person. I'm doing all of that. Well, there's one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Come and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful, rich and young ruler, went away with his heart broken because his wealth was too great. <laughs> he couldn't let go of his wallet. What are you holding to these days? What is it that keeps you from saying yes to Jesus? It's a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and Jesus changed the whole question. If you're gonna pass the test, and that's what this message is all about, to pass the test, you need to understand the question. The question about the overwhelming need that surrounds us and the limited resource is not a math question. It's a faith question. Will you trust Jesus? You see, if we come to him and he says, what are you holding? And we say, whatever it is, I trust you. I trust you. I remember in first grade being asked every afternoon when I got home from school, what did you have for lunch today, son? And my mom finally quit letting me buy lunch in the cafeteria and sending it because that way she would know what I ate or didn't trade. I could never remember what I had for lunch. There were other things going on. I might not have even eaten the lunch that I had, you know, but she wanted to know. So this boy comes with his lunch, and he's going to have to answer questions when he gets home. He gave it anyway. I don't know that he really understood that God had given him the mother that gave him the lunch in the first place, or that Jesus was the agent of God in creation. Everything that was made was made by him and for him and through him, and it was Jesus who put the first fish in the sea, and Jesus who put the first kernel of grain into the ground, and it was Jesus' rain that poured down and made it grow, and Jesus' sun that warmed it and caused it to harvest. He was simply giving back to God what God had entrusted to him. I don't know that he understood that whole equation, that the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it, every person is the Lord's. We just don't all recognize him as king. The 12 baskets of leftovers, and Jesus says, gather them up, let nothing be wasted. Here's the bottom line. Nothing you give to God will ever go to waste. Nothing you surrender to him in your life will be frittered away. 
You see, we bring him sin, he brings us forgiveness. We bring him guilt, and he sets us free. We bring him our bondage, our addictions, and he says, you don't have to live like that anymore. We bring him our hurt and our grief, and he heals us, and he walks with us. We bring him our darkness, and he shines the light, and never again does it look the same. Will you trust him today? A gift, a financial investment is not the only test, but it's always one of the tests. You see, you can't fully follow Jesus and hold back. You can't fully follow Jesus and not be obedient to his word and to his invitation. It's not a matter of looking at the overwhelming need and the limited resource. It's a matter of accepting his invitation, his challenge, his gracious invitation to walk with him, to let him lead, to find your life transformed. Not just your life, but your family, your church, and your community. That's what Jesus is all about in this passage. They wanted to make him an earthly king. He resisted that temptation at the beginning of his ministry, and he resists it here. The good news was that through this boy's gift, they recognized that Jesus was the one who was promised. And they carried that with them through the cross and the resurrection, and they came to Jesus. I pray that today God would be at work in our hearts and our lives. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would look at us as we have an encounter with you, and that we would not be content with trying to solve problems on your behalf or trying to do things in our own strength, but that we would come to you and that we would respond to your invitation to a transformational relationship, to a changed life in which everything belongs to you. And our mornings begin with, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do today? And our financial decisions are based with, Lord Jesus, what brings you the most glory and honor? What accomplishes your purpose? Father, today, as we stand in a moment to sing a song of invitation, I pray that you would prick our hearts and that we would be moved to not just speak your name or to sing your song, but to do your work, to give your gift, to participate with you in meeting the needs of this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we pray? The ministers will be here at the front, and we invite you to come and, and make your decision. Trust Christ as Savior and Lord. We invite you to come be a part of this church family. If there's another need that you have, another